There's a myth around the fact that sex is just supposed to be something primal, something um, my partner's just supposed to know what my needs are. I'm just supposed to know what their needs are. I'm just supposed, to, it's supposed to happen organically. Um, it, there, there shouldn't be stop and starts. There shouldn't be, you know, sex starting and then ending at some point or, you know, there's so many myths around what it looks like. And most of it is around the fact that conversation around sex is the biggest anti-aphrodisiac. Like, mm. I'm just supposed to be in the space where it's all natural. And that is a part that I think is is a disservice to, to all of us because processing it and trying to understand it is actually the way in which it creates deep connective sex, not actually the opposite. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Your Head. I'm your host, Kristal Roots, clinical psychologist and founder of Psych Central South Africa. I wanted to start off with firstly thanking each and every person that's listened to the podcast so far. We've received so much love and good feedback from everyone and it's really just so great to know that there's people that's enjoying this and that it's really making a valuable contribution um, in terms of giving people some food for thought. So thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And um, it really just motivates me to continue to do this and to see more people. Um, today, I'm going to be having a chat with Tova Steiner again. Tova is a counseling psychologist at Psych Central in Ravonia. And the very first episode of Inside Your Head, I had a discussion with Tova about attachment. Um, and after some further discussion and really just positive feedback from everyone, we decided to do another episode about relationships, specifically about the mystery of desire and attraction. I think that the, you really want to listen to this one. I think that these are questions that we've all sat with at some point and that we really don't necessarily always have answers for. But that's really important for us to think about. So in this episode, we discuss why we choose the partner that we do and why we're attracted to them, why excitement wanes off in long-term relationships, some myths about relationships and sex, the impact of parenthood on relationships, as well as how infidelity happens in relationships and how that affects relationships. It's a lot, so you might want to listen to it twice, um, but I really hope that you enjoy if you want to know more about Tova and the services that she offers, both to couples and adult individuals, you can have a look at her profile on psychcentral.co.za. You can also follow us on your preferred social media platform, where our handle is Psychcentral South Africa for YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Tovi, I'm really excited for this chat today. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to be talking about relationships. Mm. I think that we really got so much feedback from people after the attachment talk that was so lovely. So mm. if anyone's listening and they haven't listened to the attachment <laughs> one, maybe that's a good one to start off with. Um, and I, I just think that relationships are such a part of our everyday life that it's something that we really need to give a lot of thought and attention to. So thanks for thinking about relationships so much and thanks for reading up and thanks for <laughs> doing just the, all of the hard work so that we can chat about it. Um, I thought maybe we can start off with just we've all probably asked ourselves this question of why are we in the relationships that we are more in terms of why are we attracted to the people that we're attracted to. Um, some people even kind of say they have a type or that they, they notice a trend. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about that part, where, where it all starts, basically? It's so interesting because I think that's the revolutionary idea of imago therapy and imago theory is that we all actually come with deep unconscious wishes and hopes for a relationship and often it's actually the lost parts of ourselves that we're looking for and so when people talk about opposites attract it's often this part of me that I was never able to be and so if you are the more quiet person often the person who what attracted you to that person you, you saw them at a party and they the they, they had the crowd all around them and so that part of 
I actually don't have this part of me. So that's the opposite attracts part. And often the interesting part is then that will become the point of contention in the relationship. So I love that you could be the person who's, you know, star of the show. And then when I want to leave the party, you're not ready to leave. And so in so many ways, this part of myself that I no longer have is what I was initially attracted to and now often becomes the main issue in the relationship. Mm, that's I think it's it's so interesting I've, I've read once also where they said like there's so much debate about are we attracted to someone that's similar or are we attracted to someone who's who's opposite or maybe if I remember correctly it was more about what actually works or in, mm. ends up working um, because I guess that that there's so many other factors that also plays a role it's not just that that one thing um, right. but I think it's yeah it's it's so difficult to almost recognize how it's a part of yourself that you are not connected with or that you you are kind of disengaged from that you might be seeing in your partner. For sure. And I think that that's what actually happens in the beginning of a relationship. There's so much around this feeling of now I'm whole. Now this part of me that I never had before becomes mm. now I I am whole. I am the person who could be quiet and the person by virtue of living vicariously through our partner or being, let's use that party example, standing next to the person who has the crowd. Um, but that point also becomes a reminder of what we don't have. And so when we have that in a relationship, it's actually what I'm attracted to, but it also becomes a constant reminder of the fact that I don't have this part of me. Mm. Do you feel like it, it starts to become a problem later in relationships or is it it's something that like will, I'm wondering, is mm. it something that has mm. like a phase, like the honeymoon phase where you're so into this person due to these characteristics or, or like what factors do you think plays a role? I think that the beginning of a relationship always holds this curiosity and for me that's the word because what happens in that beginning part of the relationship is all this unknown. So you have this dual experience. I feel whole and safe with this person. In some way I get a sense of now I am my full being and yet there's so much of them I don't know and I, uh, I have a curiosity about why they are that way as opposed to criticism about that way. And I think those two words are like mm. the hook in relationships and the way to move a couple because I start with curiosity and then that thing moves to criticism. And if I could keep that curiousness around my partner and wanting to know them, and then that's also the responsibility of being, I guess, in a relationship, is how do you keep yourself interesting enough and enough for someone to want to know more about you? And so that's what keeps the couple in that constant movement. I, I want to know more about you because there is more to know about you. Mm -hmm. So I need to be curious. And if I'm a constantly evolving human being who – brings different thoughts and ideas and experiences into the relationship. I keep the curiousness there. But so do you think that it's sometimes a case of it starts off with that curiousness, but then that also becomes really scary for either party or maybe for both, but it, it becomes overwhelming how different this person than is or how, it, how it's pushing you out of your comfort zone. I think this goes into our childhood stuff. So when we spoke about attachment, that's the first layer. But there's so many conscious and unconscious lessons we're learning. So maybe we're learning conscious lessons through the way our parents interacted, through their kind of relationships. And I guess this is important as a disclaimer because people often say, so we're just here to blame our parents. But it's really how we made sense of that. Mm. So watching their relationship, if, especially if you're in a family where there's siblings, often siblings will have completely different experiences of who their parents were because often it's how we make sense of what we witnessed and then also the way they are interacted with us so let's say in this beginning relationship we which we discussed in attachment I need my parent in order to survive and I will at any cost keep that safe relationship and Gabor Mate has this amazing idea of authenticity versus attachment and so in the beginning if I am this boisterous loud child and for my parent that's too much for whatever their reasons are I will quieten down and I will you know quiet that loud boisterous side of me because it it becomes in the attachment relationship it could be something that they're they're saying to us maybe not so overtly but I'm getting the message my boisterousness impacts our attachment you're too much for me 
that experience of the parent. And so I learn that I'm too much. And so maybe it's my needs are too much or I take up too much space. So I will learn in a relationship, I need to quiet my needs. And so maybe what happens in the beginning of this relationship is this person lets me have all my needs or I watch them openly take what they want. But I've learned in relationships that you can't be too much or you can't take your needs. And so what we learn in our childhood home, we will choose attachment over authenticity all the time. Oh, wow. That's like, that's intense. <laughs> I'm thinking it's like, I just want to stop. I just want to stop there and kind of emphasize like that's a big thing that you'll choose attachment over authenticity. Especially if who I am by my, my primary caregiver is saying, you know, that's not how we that's not how we behave here. Or the child who's needy wants the mother a lot. Um, that like Melanie Klein concept of that devouring breast. So what the child may it's how it's experienced. So again, it may be that the mother is tired, but the child's experiences is her saying, Okay, I I've finished nursing you. I need you off me. And so the child learns I mustn't ask for too much. I get rejected. In so many little ways, we may learn by our home environment, this is what we need to do. But then we look almost, I think that's the Imago theory, is that we then look for this person who has this part of ourselves that we weren't allowed, that authentic part of ourselves because we chose attachment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so you, you, I wonder if it then also kind of happens that you, you, you're vicariously trying to fulfill that need, but obviously that's just a bit of a pacifier. So ultimately it doesn't fulfill that need and you're continuously still needing that. I think, yes, exactly, because that's the beginning part of the relationship. And then adult long-term relationships require so much of us because if we think again as the primary caregiver relationship as the template for everything, I want my parent close and near and to keep me safe. But the second I can crawl... I'm exploring the world and so I want freedom, but I also want to know they're there and watching me, but I want freedom. And how the f- our freedom also is responded to will also inform the way we are in relationships. If our parent safely watched us from a distance and allowed us to explore, we will internalize that freedom is part of what's being in a relationship. But if, let's say, there's an anxious mother who goes, be careful, be careful, you're going to hurt yourself, I will learn that freedom is like to tentatively feel out freedom. And so again, when we come into this adult relationship, I will want safety or freedom to varying degrees based on what my attachment primary primary caregiver experience was. Sophie, mm-hmm. but so you, you mentioned now long-term relationships and, and that that's hard work. Let's Let's delve into that a bit in terms of why things change and why relationships are hard work, why the excitement weans off. So that's exactly what we've been saying and I'd like to take it further is this idea that in the beginning there's this curiosity and the sense of like I am whole and happy and I finally found this lost part of myself. And then something happens and also again based on our primary caregiver experience of what does it mean to now be in a relationship? Do I now feel stuck? Was that, and and this is lots of questions around um, your childhood. So some questions could be, were my needs paramount or my parents' need paramount? Did I have to worry that I would upset my parent by doing something? Would I have to worry that um, my freedom would make my parent feel abandoned? All those experiences. So I come into this new relationship and for the most part, none of those things get triggered because it's just a sense of people will say, like, I felt like I was home or um, there was only the two of us and nothing else existed in the world. Um, And also that beginning part of the relationship, um, which I guess speaks to why affairs are so um, alluring, which we could discuss after, but this idea that it's only the two of you against the world. And especially in the beginning, there there aren't bills to pay and there aren't in-law family and friends to evaluate that person. It's just you two against the world. And then slowly, you know, your external world becomes part of that. And so there's different elements to reconfigure within that, but also that, that um, the dopamine and all the like 
um, chemicals that happen when we meet someone new actually wane after a few years. And so long-term relationships physiologically have a difference now. But also, I no longer have those lens, that lens of I'm curious about you and I want to know what you need and I want to make sure you're okay. Often the evaluation becomes, what am I getting out of this relationship? And this thing that I used to think was so lovely about you actually becomes really annoying. You never want to leave the party and I'm actually ready to go. So the, the um, like Esther Burrell talks about straddling two needs for freedom and security and for novelty and for the predictability of a relationship. So actually we have to hold two things at the same time in a long-term relationship. And the, the two disparate sides often create eros in a relationship and what create the excitement in a relationship or conflict because I want safety and I don't know how to have excitement or I actually love the idea of predictability, but then there's no novelty in my relationship. So it also becomes much more, I feel like at that point of the relationship, there's lots of moments of checking in and evaluating the relationship, much less at the beginning where you almost like go with the flow. Um, I'm just also sitting and thinking mm. as, you, as you're speaking, um, I wonder if it's a, initially in the relationship, you have this excitement because obviously, um, while this person has characteristics that you might feel like you don't have, you're not able to have or you've suppressed or you've detached from. But then it's also this fantasy of who you mm -hmm. think this person can be based on those things. And then when the relationship goes a bit on for a bit longer, mm -hmm. you get to the realization that that fantasy is not necessarily who they are. And I wonder how much people also hold on to Like there's, the, I always go back to this phrase from a podcast um, that I listened of Oprah. I can't remember who it was with, where they said, "When someone shows you who they are, believe them." And and I wonder how much our desires or our needs that we fantasize about and the actual person actually match, and how often that's actually a huge mismatch. Although initially these things that we notice in them that we're attracted to makes us feel like there's the potential that they can be that. Sure. I think I'm also downloading that. Mm. I think that there's something there about when you say the word fantasy, like that hope for what you will be. And then if it's not that, then there's this, okay, I'm just going to like end that relationship and try something new as opposed to leaning into what else is there. What else is there that doesn't match my fantasy, but perhaps there's something else? Mm. And that wanting to know all the parts of the person. And I think the the world we live in, in terms of everything being airbrushed and edited, actually is a way in which we don't know how to access nitty-gritty, uncomfortable, not perfect, raw um And, and not lean into the fact that there's also like seasons and the waxing and waning of an experience within that kind of long-term relationship. And so as soon as the, the you know, movement, the wave down, there's, there's almost this fear of like, and I often think about the fact that we make this contract when we start a relationship and it's a contract in the, in the sky because often we're actually not even aware of what the contract mm -hmm. is but definitely our partner is not. And so the contract is, you've showed me that you are this, and so therefore you are this, and then you aren't. There's a moment or a time when you aren't this, and it's quite jarring because it's almost like you promised me you would be this thing. But I think because it's such an unspoken thing, we we get lost in that, and maybe I'm referring to that mm -hmm. as the fantasy, mm -hmm. um, and like I know I, I said a lot, <laughs> it was a lot at, at once for you to kind of just digest but I think that that's part of what I was wondering about is um, if it's almost then feeling like it's comfortable enough that we have this partner who is what we what we would like to be or who's parts of what we we feel we need to actually be that we don't really have to change and we don't have to do the the hard work But then that's what's also the part that's so unsatisfying or dissatisfying mm -hmm. is you you end up feeling, well, but so I had this idea that when I'm in this relationship, I'm going to be able to become also the person who 
who's mm. in who's loud again and who's just expressive of myself and now I'm finding myself five years later and I'm feeling well I still can't express my needs and now it's your fault because you're the one who's always expressing your needs and somehow we kind of it's like this spider web that's just or the spiral that can just continue forever it's making me think of so many things but I think it's this idea that in the beginning we are less we're not evaluating it for for the relationship to be so many things, we're just leaning into it. And so then as the relationship progresses, there's the, what are you giving me? What is this relationship? And I think that it takes two people to create a pattern and one person to change it. Yeah. Wow. And then what happens to that person is they become the resentful one because they're like, I'm the one in therapy or I'm the one always creating change. And this idea that it's, it's such a fascinating idea in terms of like watching conflict in a relationship where Often people will argue because they want to be right. And I love this idea about children will, you, they want something and then, you know, as a mom, I'll say no. And then it's like, I hate you. You're the worst mom in the whole world. You never give me this thing. And then five minutes later, they're sitting on your lap. You're the best mom in the whole world. And what is the difference between children and adults? Because children would rather be happy than right. Oh, that's amazing. And adults would rather often, we watch this, be right than happy. But you you will be right. It's easy to be right, actually, but you will be right and alone. Mm. And so this idea of, so what if you're the one who creates the change? Be the one to say, there's a dynamic in our relationship. We've both created it. I can be the one who notices it because I'm in therapy or I've acknowledged what it is. And so I can, you know set the ball rolling to then change that dynamic. Mm, mm. How do you feel, do um, all these myths and kind of like norms that we have, or like I, I guess we, we know from attachment we have a blueprint about relationships mm-hmm. and that can obviously influence how we, our expectations of relationships and how we navigate these. But I also wonder how just like the myths that's there in society about relationships, how that can impact how people actually deal with these challenges and and how they will approach it or how long they will let things go before they actually do something about it. It's so fascinating that we are so impacted by subliminal messages around us without actually interrogating them. And this idea of this romantic love that, you know, sells all the rom all rom-coms is often this story that you know girl meets boy and then someone does something wrong and then there's a big argument often the one misunderstands the other there's a separation and then there's this grand reunion and you know I guess the happily ever after of Disney's and something about that doesn't make us interrogate what actually happens in the the up and down process of a relationship. And when we understand romantic love, so romantic love is this beginning stage, and then it moves to conflict. And conflict is such a valuable part of a relationship. And then what you do in that conflict actually impacts the cycle. So let's say we have romantic love, conflict. What you do with that conflict, you just could stay in conflict forever. Or deep conflict that gets processed actually moves you back into romantic love. And then down into conflict again and again the cycle because conflict actually helps us access parts of ourselves and parts of the other person and our relationship. And so it's deeply uncomfortable and I think that's what the myths around relationships are that for the most part things should be okay. And and arguing like when couples say we don't want to argue anymore. No, you want to argue, you want to conflict, you just want to conflict differently. You want to conflict so that it's valuable and it has mm. meaning and it gets mm. you somewhere, not just conflict for the sake of conflict. And there's so many myths. I mean, there's this idea of like creating closeness all the time. And so again, if we talk to this childhood stuff, maybe closeness actually makes you feel too vulnerable. Maybe closeness makes you move away. What does closeness look like for you in your relationship? So there'll be a partner who'll want the partner to give more, but actually... By asking that partner to give more, it's going to make them feel too vulnerable and actually make them want to move away. So that won't create closeness. Or talking creates closeness for some. You know, often couples therapists will encourage people to go away together. For some people, it's about going away alone or going mm. away with friends. So the this is what works. And for me, I think that's why I actually love Esther Perel because I don't think she has 
like imago theory for me holds so many truths and there are so many other ways of processing you know couples but having one specific way there's no way because the dynamic between people is so nuanced that having a a way in which I say this is my relationship we are two completely unique human beings coming together and so this dynamic can't be something that's textbook based and so it can't be that this is what works yeah there's there, there can't be one recipe for everything or for everyone mm-hmm. that will work for everyone and will accommodate all of their needs and i i love what you said now about for some people it might be going away and for some people it might be that you like i think the cliche thing also is you need to go on a date night right and and maybe you need a date night but maybe some couples need some time alone maybe some couples need to spend time with friends more and that that would actually allow their their relationship to develop in in another way in another um area like there's also this thing about don't go to bed angry and maybe sometimes it's good to go to bed angry and not be arguing until three o'clock in the morning because you're not allowed to sleep until we've resolved this it also means that couples have the same way to process something and that is I don't know what the statistic is. I'm going to just say it's 99%. Never the case because they'll mm-hmm. often be the one who processes by talking and talking and talking. And they'll be the one who processes by internally processing something. And we could say that came from when you came home from school as a child and you knew you could talk to your parent about your hard day or there was no one there and you had to process it on your own. So all these like don't go to bed angry, well, that works for the one party. It may not work for the couple. Um, and this this idea of space for me, that is almost like a universal, what we could say universal idea, because space could mean so many things. Space could be you need space alone together. Space could mean I need space to know who I am and then be my individual and then come together. And I think the space idea is space is actually what happens between the couple. That's the energy. When, when couples come for couples therapy, it's not that they're each in therapy it's actually the relationship is the, is the client mm. the relationship is the patient mm. so it's the space between and something that i think which is so powerful like as a practical tool that space in a relationship is often when the one partner is talking to the other and so what happens to all of us when anyone is talking is that we're actually there's there's a there's a voice and a story in our head while the other one's talking and especially especially when we're in a, a relationship and say the person's bringing something that we either disagree with or that's about us there isn't it is the hardest thing to actually create space to be truly listening so to that voice that's waiting to respond that i give space to whatever you're going to say even if when you're finished i do disagree with you for me, that space idea in a relationship is so profoundly changing because while I'm trying to share something with you, if I could actually switch off my internal voice and truly create space to listen, I think that is a huge change agent. Mm. But I think that also speaks to the whole idea of um, accepting that conflict is a part of relationships and that that's okay. I think that there's there's so many people who take conflict as an evaluation or indication of the relationship's not in a good space or like we can't be um, a healthy relationship if we're arguing all the time. And of course, there's toxic ways mm-hmm. of, of conflict um, where when there's a chronic toxic level mm-hmm. of, of hostility and conflict between people, obviously that's going to do a lot of harm. But if you can just accept the fact that it's actually healthy, that we have healthy conflict, you don't have to be in this tug of war and that like there's then automatically more space because then we don't have to worry about who's going to win this fight and who's going to be the one who's right or wrong. There's more space for like this is something that we need to go through. So let's let's go through it and let's actually be curious about this. Absolutely. And I think people who come to couples therapy and say we don't fight is actually it's harder to work with that because the conflict mm-hmm. is energy. And so the conflict is something that happens between the couple. And so exactly, instead of evaluating, oh, what's wrong with us that we conflict, it's like, how could we conflict better? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. How can we (laughs) conflict better? Mm -hmm. Wow, Toby, I feel like I have so many questions just or, or thoughts as you were speaking because there's really so many things that 
that impacts how we are in relationships and who we are attracted to and what our blueprints are or like what the ideas, uh, the myths are that we have about relationships. I guess one of the things that I was just wondering about is what what do we do? Like where do we start with it, with this whole idea even of we need to conflict better mm-hmm. or we need to understand that there's a part of ourselves that we are attracted to um, or that we're finding within our partner that we've disconnected with. What Like what do we do when we realize that? Like I know you might not mm. have one answer, mm. but I'm just wondering mm. like mm. as humans, what do we do with all of this awareness? For me, one of the things is that as humans, and I don't know if this is universal, maybe this is just me, but often I will keep doing the same thing and think that there should be a different outcome. Mm. And so the first part is this curiosity around how and why. Why am I reacting this way to to my partner when they're, you know, when, when something happens? But also, okay, so now this has been our dynamic and then I keep trying the same thing. And I think that that's the part in, in terms of a practical way to respond to all of this. I have all this knowledge or I don't have any knowledge, but I can watch a pattern play out. It can be even as simple as like my partner comes home later than expected. They say they'll be home at 7.30 and they get home at 8. And I have a completely over, complete overreaction to it. And each time we land up in this conflict. But I wonder if there was a way in which I could sit with myself and think, what happens when they come late? What's the stuff that comes up for me? What's the feeling mm-hmm. that comes up for me? And maybe there's something around how do we stay in feelings? Like how do we stay in feelings as a place of so much direction and knowledge that our feelings are there to teach us so much and so if my partner comes late and I feel sad and then what else do I feel well I feel actually a bit devalued and then I actually feel like you obviously had much more important things and I can go down the rabbit hole of all the ideas connected to that feeling then I could probably hash it out with my partner as opposed to why are you late again I could say something like when you come home late I'm noticing that it always makes me feel so unloved, which would be a very different way for the partner Mm -hmm. to respond and say, in future, when I say I'm leaving, I'll actually let you know when I'm really much closer to home because I can see that this is, as opposed to just, we keep getting into the cycle of, you know, you're always late, but um, it's only 15 minutes. What's the difference? Mm. Um, As you're saying that, I'm just thinking of this whole, um, like, I'll see on on Instagram or social media, you'll see like hashtag couple goals or like this is a power couple. And and I think that there's this idea that we we a lot of us hold on to is we want to be this this couple that people admire. We want to be this couple that seems like we we really a good fit. And and I guess a lot of that is based on the external validation that it, it gives you as a couple when everyone's saying, wow, you guys are so great together. You never fight. You mm-hmm. um, like you just do well. And for me, I'm just thinking about that personally, is like it's so powerful to let go of this idea that you need to be the perfect couple. Because where that comes, the acceptance of it's okay if we have, have conflict. It's okay if my partner doesn't meet my needs. And that leaves a room for you to actually start reflecting on yourself and go okay but so why am I responding in this way as opposed to almost being too afraid to ask those questions because what if this says maybe we shouldn't be together I think that that's a a big thing even for a lot of couples that I've seen in couples therapy where you almost can't get to the real root of things because you're so busy trying to protect the relationship and and how it seems from the outside that you can't truly express what your experience is. You can't truly reflect on these things and be aware because it almost comes with this fear of what if it's then doomed and what if it's kind of like, no, we can't, we can't work on this. I, I have two like main thoughts on that. My first thought is we have this idea that our, our partner is supposed to be our entire world and it's, it's, I don't know where it came from, but it's it's humanly impossible. And also, if it was possible, 
Firstly, it would mean we are deeply not nuanced and we are actually quite one-dimensional and would also mean that we are quite codependent in a way. Mm -hmm. Actually, I need so many other things from my world and my relationship is almost like the, my, the bridge. It's the bridge between myself and the world. And so when I am full and my, uh, my relationship has meaning, then I can go out in the world and be this person in the world. And then I can take whatever I'm gaining from the world and cross that bridge through my relationship back into finding meaning for myself and continue that cycle. And this idea that um, couples will often say, we, we kind of want to know if we're right for each other. Like yes, yes, we are, yes. You know, is, can you tell us if we're wrong for each other? Because just tell us now and then, you know, we're wasting our time and money here. Mm -hmm. And often what I think is if you are here and you are in this conflict, it probably means you're really right for each other. Because if you are triggering all my stuff, it also means you hold all the healing for that. Mm -hmm. So, yes, of course, there could be examples of where, you know, this is like you're saying that toxic relationship. But for many people, the fact that there is deep conflict is actually showing you that there's deep healing potential here. And I think the same goes for like I've had couples who will say, but we, we hesitant to come, but we're here because obviously we're sitting with this conflict and we don't know what to do. But is it too soon for us to come for couples therapy? Because we also have this idea and I actually read once that people wait on average, I think it was six years to go for yes. couples therapy. Yes. Um, which is insane. So you'll have a problem for six years because you're almost worried about the judgment of what if we're just together for a year or what if we're just married for six months and now we're already sitting with these problems. And again, that idea of the evaluation of what that puts on your relationship. So there's then like you're not allowing the relationship to access help because there's this idea that it should be at least for the first few years it should be good if it's not then that kind of means you shouldn't be together right and I feel like we discussed this in our attachment when we we're talking about attachment that there's this idea that we're all supposed to know yeah you're supposed to know how to navigate a relationship by virtue of the fact that you're an adult I don't know where that comes from or that you're supposed to know how to parent by virtue of the fact that you can have a child this idea that needing help means that it is in crisis which mm -hmm. you're saying is the six-year mark often speaks to the fact that we don't we think there's just supposed to be this natural osmosis process of navigating a relationship seamlessly because that means that you're good at this relationship and if you need help it probably signifies something wrong about the relationship as opposed to we all need to be coached in every area of our life mm. that kind of takes me takes my thoughts to sex and intimacy as well Tovi, because I think that there's so many myths that we have around that especially in relationships and and I wonder even how um, how that process is in terms of initially what you're attracted to, then that changing throughout the relationship or sex not remaining the same throughout relationships. What's your, what's your thoughts? So this idea for me is actually about measuring the eroticism in the relationship because, first of all, sex is so... It's the, it's the one space, whereas eroticism is like the charge in the relationship. And for many people, they could navigate their sexual relationship, whereas both parties are comfortable with sex sporadically or with sex more often. The, the charge between the couple is what happened. And we're talking about in that beginning is actually the unknown. I don't know you. I still want to get to know you. There's still this curiosity around you. And what happens in long-term relationships is I know you there's there's little for me to know and often people will say how can you have sex with one person for the rest of your life and monogamy in theory is a crazy concept but if you are both constantly evolving which also speaks to that conflict cycle process mm -hmm. you learn more about yourself you learn more about your partner you learn more about your relationship actually I don't know you and so that idea of intimacy and eros in a relationship being constantly wanting to know more about you um, and this idea that there's seasons to relationships and that different parts of our lives where we are will impact um, our sex life. And this idea also that I think there's um, so much of our childhood stuff because if the, this, this beginning experience is actually, as a baby, everything we experience is in our body. So if I'm cold, if I'm hungry, if I'm tired... 
all those are complete bodily sensations. And so I learned to actually be embodied as an infant and as an adult, less and less in touch with my body. And then what messages did I get from that experience? What did I get about um, devouring? What did I get about space? What did I get about independence? So if a couple come and say they're not having enough sex or the quality of their sex is not good enough, there'll be so many avenues to explore. Where are they now? What are the messages that they got? And Esther Perel speaks about this, and I love this idea. What, where were the messages that you got around sex as a child? And often people will say, well, it was never spoken about. Or, you know, in the sex scene in Titanic, it, you know, we were, the family was sitting around and the parents quickly <laughs> fast-forwarded. I was the probably like, scene, yes, your, your eyes yes. were closed. Yeah. Um, so that's a message around sex. Yeah. You got a message around sex. You got a message that we don't look at it. It's private. And, and maybe that also is your meaning making. Your parent could have said, we never said sex was dirty, except why did you fast forward that scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet? I thought it meant it was dirty. So, so many messages around sex, so many messages around sexuality, so many messages around gender, so many messages around what does it mean to be embodied, so many messages around what does it mean to be connected. Um, I think that it's so this it's so multifaceted and so layered and that again we're also getting so many messages around that um maybe there's gender norms the gender norm is that uh, men want sex all the time and you know women are the reticent ones what if that's reversed in your relationship how do you navigate that if the woman wants more sex than the man and and something about that dynamic feels uncomfortable so I think that the, the beginning part of the relationship is often marked stereotypically by that, like, I want to get to know you and I want to spend time with you. And the more I know you, the more actually there's less for me to want to uncover and find out. And many people have the experience of the deeper our relationship gets and the more I know you and the safer I feel with you, the greater our sex. So it's 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 quite specific. Mm. I think it's so beautiful when you can get to the stage where you can really just, uh, the, the word that just keeps on coming up in my mind is just letting go. And I think we, we try and control things so much, um, whether that's our sex life or um, just like daily activities, that's, that's a part of your relationship, what you, what you think a partner should be giving you, um, how you get what you want, like we're just controlling everything the whole time and in that control part you're missing so much of what your partner can actually give you and how this is a, a space for people to grow together and to things to just unfold and to really experience things together as opposed to I have this idea of what it should be and I'm trying to make sure that we fit the, this mold the whole time well control is fear so I wonder what happens in our relationships that we have a fear around if we fear the unruliness of it or we fear the the constriction of it and so therefore the control comes in. But I also wonder, you know, sex and money are really the two hardest things to talk about. People can have sex, but talking about sex is really uncomfortable. Mm. And 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 there's a the dynamic that happens in the relationship often plays out sexually. So what how how do couples have conversations around sex? And actually I should actually be getting commission for Esther Perel. <laughs> I, I can hear. <laughs> yes, definitely. But she has, um, where should we begin um, card game? Yes, I've heard of it. And apparently it's amazing. And apparently there's, there mm. is a whole section that's like, um, you know, sex rated so that kids mm. and when you're playing it in a family setting. But I wonder if there's a way in which the, that kind of space, if you know that talking about sex is really difficult for you, how do you facilitate mm -hmm. a space to say, what's our dynamic? What's working for us? What's not working for us? And so th the talking of the managing of expectations is also so valuable. Mm. I listened to this this podcast um, from Glennon Doyle. I'm on the Glennon Doyle <laughs> train, <laughs> um, train <laughs> at this stage. Um, but they, they were speaking to this guy who, it was such a fascinating discussion, but they were speaking to this guy, um, now I can't remember his name, who um, is gay and paralyzed. And he was in this accident when he was younger. Um, and they were just discussing how communication in sex is so important and I think a lot of people think that their communication is good but then if you have to look at it they actually don't speak about sex 
at all. And and just the whole discussion was around how, again, we have this idea about sex is about making certain sounds and noises and performing in a certain way and how sex often is actually performance for a lot of people and not a true connection and where sometimes you can almost you can be having sex without having sex when like physically having Mm -hmm. sex where you have this deep emotional intimacy and physical intimacy as well but there's this deep connection because you're really communicating with each other and it's really about what feels good for me what feels good for you and how do we create a space for that to happen as opposed to just like again this is what I read in the Cosmo and this Mm. is what needs to work for everyone I think that that's a myth there's a myth around the spontaneity of sex Mm. there's a myth around the fact that sex is just supposed to be something primal something um, my partner is just supposed to know what my needs are I'm just supposed to know what their needs are I'm just supposed it's supposed to happen organically um it there, there shouldn't be stop and starts there shouldn't be you know sex starting and then ending at some point or you know there's so many myths around what it looks like and most of it is around the fact that conversation around sex is the biggest anti-aphrodisiac like mm. I'm just supposed to be in the space where it's all natural and that is a part that I think is is a disservice to to all of us because processing it and trying to understand it is actually the way in which it creates deep connective sex not actually the opposite and I guess it it should be again about quality versus quantity because I've had so many people who have asked me in couples therapy and and I've never been able to answer that um where they'll they'll say but so how many times should we have sex a week or a month um, and people Google and then they find like these impossible stats to to compare themselves with. And again, we're missing each other if that's what we are worried about instead of what's happening for us and what's our experience and what feels good for us, whether that is once a month or whether that is once a week, like it, it doesn't really matter. Absolutely. And I think something along the line of how do I navigate this with my partner who will probably have very different needs and expectations. Again, this difference between us is the thing that's actually going to keep us connected, not as a way that will hamper the relationship. So if the one partner would love sex every night and the other partner doesn't want that, that's like quite fearful. How do how do we navigate this? Because we're so different. What does that mean? What is what is sexual compatibility anyway? So that around, what does it mean for you? What happens when you have sex every night? What is this experience for you? Do you feel super connected? How else could you feel super connected? Why do I not want it as much as you? Mm-hmm. What are things, Tavi, that you feel or the, that, that comes to mind that impacts sex, the closeness in a relationship, like phases of life or things that we experience? Is there anything that, that, you, that you are thinking of Mm. specifically well I think parenthood for sure stands out because Mm -hmm. I think it's a massive change in the relationship and I think let's say like physiologically there's so many impacts on um, let's just say the woman is carrying a baby she's birthed a baby if she's breastfeeding a baby or waking up at night for a baby there's so many experiences for a woman in terms of that and 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 for men many men may feel sidelined in that relationship many men may not know what their place is many men may experience their wives as mother so how do you have sex with this woman who now is the mother of your child and the exhaustion and the responsibility i think that parenthood on the one hand creates a deep closeness and connection and at the same time reinforces this domesticity part. Mm. And I think that also, the, especially like the beginning stage, there's so much, there's quite a lot of chaos and unpredictability. And so you're going to want to create so much so much predictability. Like I was thinking yesterday, I was sorting out my kid's playroom and I was thinking, this is what, one of the def- like problems of being a psychologist is there like chaos that I felt like I needed to organize something? And I was like, no, it was just like I needed, you know, I needed (laughs) it to be organized. But this experience of having a new baby and wanting to have everything organized and that the floor mopped is the most important thing over and above everything else because wherever I can now create predictability because I don't know when this baby's going to wake up, which is traditionally actually eros killer. 
because I want everything now predictable. Sleep is more important than anything else in the whole world. Um, for a lot of women, they're getting all that touch stuff with the baby, um, that closeness. Um, and not that that's sexual, but that it fills a need that now I'm no longer necessarily looking for closeness. So I think parenthood is a massive change in the mm. sexual relationship. And I think knowing that and accepting that and talking about it and processing it and knowing that it's, it's you know, it's a phase and what comes up for both of you. Um, I haven't got there yet, but empty nest syndrome, I think, is a massive mm. part of like, you know, midlife crisis stuff. And now you're left alone. And what kind of relationship have you had? Um and I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Johannesburg lifestyle because I'm comparing it to people who I know live in Cape Town and get an opportunity to like walk past the mountain in the afternoon. I think the domesticity of our life is often an erotic killer. And so that's important to know. How do you, one of the practical suggestion I give people is that I think it's really nice if you have a separate WhatsApp group with your partner. So you have your, the plumbers here, you know, the geezer burst, that yeah. kind of stuff. And then you actually have a group where you it's it, it can be where you know you you talk about things that maybe you're not comfortable to talk about or you talk about sex or you talk about sex you've had the night before because then as you're saying that then there's like there's a bill that needs to be paid and so somehow to um from modern family when they when they meet each other the the married couple and they meet each other at a hotel mm -hmm. but this idea of how do I create this experience with my partner of like a parallel experience within the domestic sphere because that really create creates a way in which I don't I know who you are we're paying bills we're continuing our life how do I keep this like other excited erotic part of my relationship parallel to my safe secure relationship and I, I think that that's part of also what probably um the whole pandemic and people working from home really did well it, it, it impacted a lot of relationships where now you're even spending the whole day every day together there's no separation there's no just kind of like I think a lot of people switch between the roles of I'm I'm a mother and then my partner gets mm -hmm. home and then there's a like a switch in the in the dynamic um and then we go to bed now it's kind of like everything's happening in this one space and so the switching between roles are even more complicated for a lot of people where like it, it's just the autopilot we don't think about anything and we're just experiencing it and then we're expecting that we need to want to have sex in between absolutely i think COVID. i mean people who are still working at home together it's a really really difficult part of their relationship that i don't have this way outside and i don't have a way to access the other part of me and then come home as this other part of me but during the pandemic i think what was quite scary was the sense of the unknown and how much predictability we needed to create for ourselves because of the world being so unsafe and so again that experience of needing to keep control and predictability those are the kind of elements that create safety and security and a sense of wholeness and 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 lovely, but not erotic. And and this idea that love is safety, but desire is mystery. And in order for there to be desire, there has to be some level of mystery. And so I need to keep creating these dual experiences within my relationship. I don't want it to be all mystery that I have no idea who you are. That's like a sense of I'm quite unsafe. I want to feel safe. I want to know that there's a sense of predictability. And yet I still want there to be this mystery part of my relationship. And I think if you're working at home together and you don't have a sense of who else are you, what kind of day did you have, I think that hugely impacts the relationship. Mm. Is that a part of why people often end up cheating? It's so interesting. I love, I think this idea of parking any like ethical considerations around what happens when when there's infidelity and, and again that curiosity about what happens. So often people will say there was something missing in the relationship. And I think that that, that is often the case. I think also what happens is that there's often a betrayal before. And so the betrayal of the, let's say, the affair is deeply wounding. And the person who had the affair often needs to take responsibility for hurting their partner. But if we look back, there may have been a betrayal in terms of the other partner not spending time with the person, the other partner dismissing the person. There's often a betrayal that precedes the actual affair betrayal. But I think there's something about the nature of an affair that that cannot 
that is very hard to recreate in a relationship. So there's this otherness of this person. There's the passion that comes with, I'm just going to find whatever time I can to be with you. There's the part of the affair that we speak about happens in the beginning of the relationship. There's no bills to pay. There's no children. There's no in-laws. There's no domestic part of the relationship that's a killer. And and people who will end, let's say they're married and they have an affair, if they end their marriage, they'll often find that the affair loses its, you know, loses its light and mm. energy because mm. it, it was held in place by the fact that there was a there, there was a transgression attached to it. And so can you want what you already have is actually what the affair comes to teach us because the affair holds this allure of this person who you never really have and the relationship is never really solidified and there's something that I'm looking for there. It could just be related to sex. The person's not having enough sex in the relationship. It could be attention. It could be passion. There's so many. And, and as soon as we, you know, morally want to draw lines around an affair, I think that there's very little curiosity around it. And so... Um, it's interesting because now there's a lot of question around why don't we question monogamy as opposed to questioning the affair. It almost feels like that concept of wanting to look outside of a relationship is more natural than the concept of monogamy. Mm. And so what happens in an affair holds so much potency because many times it does end a relationship, but many times it's exactly what the relationship actually needed. Yes, the person needs to take responsibility for the actual affair, but what happens in the relationship as a result of that? And I think if we can move past um, that point, especially because I think a lot of couples end up coming for couples therapy when yeah. they are in a space where one or sometimes both partners cheated and mm -hmm. it's kind of like now we need to rebuild the trust. But I've also often seen where couples don't really want to talk about the infidelity. And so, or maybe one partner mm -hmm. wants to know, like usually the, the person that was cheated on wants to know all of the details um, but not to know, not to understand, not necessarily to learn from, mm -hmm. but more, I need to know what the extent of the betrayal is. And, and I think that it's, it's so difficult. I can, I can understand completely that it's hard for people to get there, but it's so necessary to get to the point where we can say, what does this incident teach us? And what can we learn from it of ourselves, of the relationship, of what's happened? And that it is actually maybe sometimes teaching you a lot of things that you're needing, not just like this, it's the end of the, of the relationship. Obviously, I'm not promoting people, ha people having extramarital affairs, but it's about being able to see past the betrayal and, and learn from what, what awareness this can bring. Absolutely. It can and, be amazing. Mm, and the question is, what did you find there? What did yeah. you actually find in that affair? that you were looking for? And was it something you were looking for? Was it something that you take responsibility for not being able to articulate? Does the other party take responsibility for the betrayal element of that? There was this part in the relationship where you were forgotten. And I think for all of us, this idea that actually you have your partner is a fallacy. There may be a ring on your finger or there may be some long-term commitment, but this idea that we own our partner to the point that they could never go anywhere else, um, like the ways in which actually our partners are often most attractive to us is often when there's an otherness. So mm -hmm. if they're in a room and you watch them talking to other people and you see them as an otherness or a way in which maybe you see other people see them as attractive, there's a way in which our partner's otherness is actually the point in which we find attraction in them is is actually the very nature of, of what happens in an affair. Is, And I think that it could go into, again, childhood stuff what does it mean when you you are in a relationship are you suffocated doesn't mean you lose yourself how do you navigate secrets and privacy did you feel like your partner was so invasive in your space you never had a space and so you created this big secret um there's so many layers to it and i think that creating otherness in our in our partner is actually very vital. So this idea of the potential for them to have an affair is actually part of a long-term relationship because they are never yours. Mm. Mm. But I think it's that whole holding the opposites at one in one moment mm. where they're never fully yours, but they like it's also this feeling of but we we committed to each other. So it feels like those go, like they pull us in different directions. 
the same where I want to be um, as close to you as I, as I possibly can, but I also want to be an individual at the same time. It's so difficult to have those opposites coexist. It's so it's so hard because we live in an either or world. We've been, mm. you know, I think we, it's easier for us to be an either or and to hold both and all the time where we we straddle this, you know, freedom and security and excitement and predictability, all these two different ideas all the time in our relationship, but also that in ourselves we are, that we are not one-dimensional and that the world isn't linear and that, you know, opposing forces are often there at the same time and how do we encourage this otherness in our partner and that control idea of where does the fear come in? Why do I need to control them? What does it mean to me if they will be so other? So... It's never ending, actually, mm. this idea of self-discovery within any part of the relationship. And um, I think that we have many relationships in our lifetime, hopefully. And, and sometimes they're, they're with different people. And sometimes they could even be with the same person. That's the, the hope, actually, is that I evolve and you evolve and the relationship evolves. So that even if I'm in a long-term relationship, I feel like I actually have many relationships in one. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it is... A lot of people will say, but you're different. And so, like, you've changed. Mm-hmm. But you changing is actually, it's a good thing. You should be changing. And that that's part of what keeps a relationship alive is constantly changing. The other day I realized, and, well, this is just making me think a lot about my, I'm, I'm really learning <laughs> a lot personally. But um, I said to someone, I met Juve when I was 16 years old. And so we've been dating for 15 years, oh. um, which is half of my life, basically. And I realized the other day, I've never been an adult without Juve in my life. Hmm. And that was a big realization for me to realize I haven't been, I want to say, this entity on my own without this relationship. And only now, I guess, in this phase of my life where I'm now, I'm able to really start seeing myself as this separate entity while I'm a part of a relationship. And I think that a lot of people who are in, well, I can't assume, but I think that that's the case for a lot of people who are in a long-term relationship who's like childhood sweethearts and this whole thing because you, you never really get to think about who you are alone. You are always in this dynamic where there's someone who's thinking about it with you as opposed to when you are like single for five years while you're in your late 20s and then you meet someone and then you become like a a couple and there's this relationship there's distinctively two different Mm. entities and for me I think well that's just for me personally that's a big part of what I'm I'm hearing is this whole letting go of how the relationship should be, finding yourself evolving as a human being, and that that's actually a part of what will keep the relationship interesting, Mm. desirable, um, all of those things. Absolutely. And I think the serendipity of it is that for some people, maybe the journey has to be in between relationships on their own. And what you're saying is that somehow you could keep evolving within the safety of this relationship. Mm. And it gave you the way in which you could... like it was a platform for you to then mm. to then develop yourself further. Mm. So we we touched on so many things today. <laughs> we touched. Do you have any other thoughts, anything else that you wanna kind of in conclusion? Yeah, I feel say? like I feel like we've we, we have touched on so many things. I feel for me the common thread is this idea of like First of all, curiosity is the word I love and I use it over and over again Mm. because I think that that's what keeps us evolving and changing. Um, And and this idea of how do we acknowledge and have less fear around the polarities in our life and, and know that both of them hold so much power. And so if we can straddle two different ideas and experiences within a relationship and give both of them value, then I think that that really is, you know, we, we don't want to stay away from recipes. and But that way of, of really holding something is being able to hold two ideas. Mm, mm. 
And I think that, well, just from what you've said now, that's also part of what will um, create space for, for people to develop really long, meaningful relationships. Um, that acceptance and that just letting go. Um, not it, it's, it's kind of like a paradox because it's letting go, but <laughs> actually not letting go. So all of it is, exactly. Yeah. It's about being comfortable in the paradox. Mm-hmm. So we thanks so much for sharing your ideas with us. Thank I think you. that there's going to be a lot of follow-up <laughs> that, that might come from this. So we might have some more discussions um, about some of these ideas. But it's always so lovely to just share your thoughts and, and to hear what, what, what your way of thinking is about couples. Thanks, Christelle. Okay, Toby. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow or subscribe on your desired platform. I will be so grateful if you're willing to take the time to rate this podcast so that you can continue to learn more about various topics related to your mental health and well-being. 